Good morning and welcome to Love Babs Love Talk on WNHHFM New Haven's home for community radio. I'm Paul Bass filling in for the inimitable Babs Rawls Ivy, who is away this week at a writing workshop. She'll come back over five next week. Happy Tuesday, everybody. It was going to be a busy, messy, difficult Tuesday, um, according to some of the weather reports, and in much New England it is. In New Haven, we dodged a bullet in terms of a messy morning, but we're going to hear the latest of what's happening on the roads with New Haven's Emergency Management Chief, Rick Fontana. Rick, good morning, and thanks for joining us on uh, Love Babs Love Talk. Hey, good morning, Paul. Thanks. Uh, thanks for having me. Appreciate it. I appreciate you making time, because even though we didn't get a snowstorm this morning, we got a lot of rain, and there were some weather reports that we were going to get a lot of snow. Did the rest of the state get hit pretty hard, Rick? Yeah, you know, just uh, in my conversation with uh, folks from around the uh, other parts of the state, I actually talked with Jeff Pascasolito this morning from uh, from our public works department and his conversations with uh, there. You know, they've got about eight inches of snow up in the uh, in the corners uh, of the state. And again, I think we we kind of knew this. We were we've been watching this storm as we do for most storms uh, over the last uh 36 hours or so. And again, the temperatures weren't going to allow snow, but, you know, we got almost an inch of rain. Uh, calculate that to snow. Uh, it's uh, 10 to 12 wow. inches of snow we could have had. So, you know, with temperatures uh, as warm as they've been, and as you said, dodging a bullet, we've been we've been fortunate. It has seemed like that's been the story of this winter, Rick, because, you know, I'm always calling you up every winter a whole bunch of times because every time there's big snowstorms, we want to find out alternate side of the street. Regulation streets that are closed, how many accidents, ticking, ticketing, getting people off the street, how the plows are doing. And it seemed like this is the, the winter like none other we've seen where you're ready for these storms that pretty much just miss us because we're over that freezing temperature. But it does hit the rest of the state. Yeah, you know, we, we have been fortunate, but I will tell you this. We have uh, we really have done everything in our power to plan and make sure we're ready. You know, the mayor has, you know, pretty much everyone on their toes and how important it is to ensure that the public is in fact getting good service from all of the public safety departments uh, along with public works. And again, we work really hard in our planning com component and our strategy to make sure that we're ready. And, you know, we've always tried to, I don't wanna say over prepare, but, I, you know, being ready and having all of the crews in place are of utmost importance. And I will tell you, it's easier to scale up before an event. And I don't care what the event is. And then if we don't get it, we scale back. And, you know, we've we've got every piece of technology out there helping us make the right decisions, saving on overtime, making sure the people are getting the right message. And, you know, really, that's kind of what we try to do. But again, public safety in this city, you know, is always number one. And I guess would an example be, Rick, that someone who's ready to drive a snowplow, did you have someone ready to drive snowplows in case that temperature dropped another two or three inches and now instead they could be out picking up the garbage this morning? Is that how it works? Yeah. You know, we, we have, we've had a team ready uh, since yesterday when we thought some snow would start to come into the, uh, into the area. But again, we knew that it would be maybe a coating if at mm -hmm. all, but again, don't, this isn't over. I will tell you this, it's not over. Uh, we expect some snow and rain uh, later this afternoon uh, as the temperatures get a little bit colder. It'd still be above freezing, but, you know, again, yeah, the atmosphere is a little bit different. So we expect um, some snow this afternoon. And look, if I could just make a couple of recommendations, really, 
if we see some flooding, which we could see, turn around, don't drive through it. If a live wire is on the ground or any wire, don't touch it, call 911. And if you got to drive today, later on, when we expect there to be some snow, some rain, some heavier winds, just give yourself some extra time. Don't be right behind that person in front of you and really just uh, just take it slow. Uh, just some of the things that we think that will work to keep people safe. Rush hour is going to be a little messy, it sounds like. Yeah, I, you know, that's, you know, again, and that's what the forecast is calling for uh, along uh, along the shoreline. Uh, you know, during the winter, we get a break with the shoreline temperatures. But, you know, during the summer, during the storms, uh, it beats us up a little bit more, you know, as as being on the shoreline, <laughs> being close to the coast, coast yeah. you know, we get we get more of the flooding. We had some minor flooding this morning, but nothing to really speak of just in those areas of frequent flooding. Now, there's going to is going to rain quite a bit more today, correct? I noticed yeah. that, you know, we've done a lot of work in New Haven long term planning to get rid of some of that flooding. You know that how immediately Union Avenue can often get flooded, how I, I believe if I'm not mistaken, Rick out by Middletown Avenue under one of the highway bridges. There's a, I don't know if it's Route 91 or if it's on 17 where we get a lot of flooding and people drive into the flooding as you were mentioning. So um, I know that we've got a lot of applications and some of them approved for money to do some of that long run remediation work. So in the meantime, it's kind of up to you, isn't it, Rick? As you did a minute ago to remind people, don't drive into a flooded intersection. Where are some of the places like later today and some other storms when it's where we got to watch out for where it floods yeah so i, I think the the areas that we see uh, frequent flooding around are uh, under the uh, railroad bridge uh, on middletown avenue and that's uh that's probably our most uh, frequent flooded area as well as you know by the police department over on union avenue and you know the infrastructure is small and new haven has small infrastructure because it's old and it it floods a lot easier at high tide. So, you know, we expect some of that to happen today. Uh, you can li literally get it out on Quinnipiac Avenue uh, under the railroad bridge there. You can get it over by the post office. But again, just, just give yourself some extra time and not turn around. Don't go through because, you know, the, far too many times uh, the fire department is in the water taking somebody out of their vehicle because yeah. they thought they can get through it. But, you know, I, I, I say just, just plan, have a plan to know that if you got to turn around, you got to turn around. Rick, it really strikes me whenever I think about this question of how you, you can't know until after the fact what the snow or rain will actually be. I think of 2013 is Snowmageddon, Nemo. When we went to bed and you guys were ready because they said, every forecast said, if, I don't, if I'm not mistaken in memory, up to a foot of snow. We went to bed and we woke up, there were three feet of snow, the most we've ever had in town since the 1800s. And, you know, it was piled up where you walked in the middle of the street up above the of the cars and some of the houses. Is that, is that the storm that sticks out most in your memory? Or tell me some other storms where you caught by surprise so you learned. Yeah, I, I could remember, you know, and for, for myself, I could go back to 78 uh, and, and 2013. Oh, yeah. Those are the two most memorable. And in 1978, we were driving around on snowmobiles. We were picking nurses up and bringing them to the hospital to get them to work. And, you know, that, you know, I'll, and I'll never forget bringing patients out of homes to get to an ambulance on two snowmobiles, having a stretcher in between both of them. So I remember all that. But again, in 2013, Snowmageddon, you know, people skiing on the streets in New Haven. You know, we had the National Guard here. It was the first time I ever had a call for the National Guard, you know, early on uh, in my career here. 
and you know asking we need vehicles to get through the snow at one point we had nine fire engines and seven ambulances stuck and the snow because it came it came really quickly you know we all thought we were getting a foot and you're right you know at three in the morning we had two feet and at eight o'clock we had almost three feet of snow so you know uh, we were we were trying to get people out of their homes to dialysis appointments and you know it was a, a you know a terrible mess you know there was there was no we, we had to get food for people in EOC and I'll never forget you know we used to use the meals ready to eat and uh, you know the mayor at the time mayor to Stefano said don't don't feed my people that garbage let's try and get them some good food but you know it was I, I will tell you uh, one thing about New Haven, when 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 the going gets tough, uh, people around here really put their efforts. Into I actually working. love that. I love the spirit in our city, especially a bigger storm, snowstorms. I love walking around, talking to you and the other people, you know, hundreds of people who work on helping people out with alders who help people, you know, the emergency crews. So, Rick, you mentioned 78. You've been helping people in storms for a long time. If I have the sequence right, you were a West Haven firefighter. You retired. And now it's been quite a while you've been in charge of emergency management for New Haven. How many years has it been emergency management? Yeah, I, I actually got here in uh, in 2008, in September 2008, after uh, two careers in the fire service, 30 years. Uh, but I will tell you, you know, nothing beats being a firefighter. Um, I had to leave uh, for an injury. But I will tell you, New Haven has been an unbelievable place to work. Uh, you know, I tell people, I just came over the Kimberly Avenue bridge. It's not like I went far. Uh, and I have a, there's a lot of history in New Haven and, you know, working really closely with the fire department, the police department, it, it has been an honor. And whether, you know, whether it was Mayor Stefano, whether it was Mayor Harp, uh, now Mayor Ellicott, you know, it's been an honor to work here. And, you know, I've, I've been very fortunate and just, you know, helping everybody through, you know, strategizing the best way to handle emergencies, especially the big ones where we're all multidisciplined and, you know, all of the departments and agencies working together. We really have a great team. And, and I know, and, you know it starts at the top. You get. I feel like you get, as do we as reporters, you get excited when the storm is not that you're happy and anyone's going to have trouble, but you get pumped to work with other yeah. people and help people out. Tell me something about that psychology. Like, you know, you're not going to be sleeping as much. You know, you're going to, when you're down at the emergency operations center below 200 Orange Street, you, you take a lot of calls at one time. You're help, you know, you work with UI in the room, the police, the firefighters, AAA, whoever it is you're working with, the weather service. That's fun, isn't it? Yeah. Well, you know what? It is. You 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 hit it on the head, Paul. It's disaster psychology, and I could I could tell you this. Um, there's nothing better than 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 helping people. And I will tell you, in New Haven, we have a huge amount of vulnerable populations. And there are so many of them, but being engaged and helping out and really seeing the fruit of it, you know, when, when people are genuinely like, you really help get to help people. And there's nothing, there's no better feeling. And I don't care what part of public safety you're in, there's no better feeling. And I always say, you know, having a plan is so critical whether it's, you know, whether it's a hurricane, whether it's a snowstorm, whether it's a fire in your home, people don't understand if you just have a plan and, you know, the next time, you know, for your listeners, the next time people are sitting down at the kitchen table and having dinner, just, just, just think about, Hey guys, if we have a fire in the house, let's all meet at the big tree in the backyard, or let's meet across this, across the street at Johnny's house or, or down the street. 
But if you have a meeting place, you got to talk about it, have a plan because nothing worse than getting out of a house and going back in because you didn't think a pet made it out or a family member. There's nothing worse than that. And, you know, we want, you know, we always talk about plan, plan, plan. You know, we've got more active shooters today than we have seen in the history of this country. And you know what? We, I tell people all the time, have a plan. Make sure that you know what to do. Make sure that you watch the video run, hide, fight. It's seven minutes. It gives you an understanding of, God forbid, you're in that situation that you know what to do. And we talk, we talk about all hazard planning. These are all the things you've got to be careful for. It takes, it takes time to have a plan, but it's all about communication, communicating with your family, communicating with your friends. And then, of course, we all communicate here in New Haven of public safety. And I, as I said before, you know, I, I, I really I'm honored to work here. And, you know, the leadership here has has been unbelievable, focused on making sure people are safe. Rick Fontana, is there one moment that sticks out in your mind as the most dramatic or most memorable of when you were working in an emergency situation and helped somebody out? Yeah, you know, I'll, I'll relate it to back to Superstorm Sandy in 2012 when we didn't evacuate the Village Inn and Suites on, um, on uh, Long Wharf Drive. And believe me when I tell you, we thought we were good. And when that water came up and into the lobby, it was one of those things where it was the wow moment. Like, this is really happening for us. You know, we were we were preparing for a category uh, literally less than a category one storm, but we didn't anticipate the amount of storm surge. And that really was a wow moment for us. Thank God. I say there was a second floor because we moved everybody to the second floor and we couldn't move them then because we had three feet of water uh, on the ground. Uh, How did you get box. there? How did you I, get we there? Act I actually didn't. I was I was hunkered down in the emergency operations center with, uh, you know, with the fire chief, the police chief and the mayor. And we were just like, you know, making sure that we understood that people were going to shut power down and we're going to move people to the second floor. So, you know, the fire department was there and said, Hey, you got three feet of water. We can't start moving people now. So again, I, I think even for us, it comes down to having that strategy, knowing, knowing when to evacuate people, how to move people. And we think about it all the time, but again, if people heed our advice, um, you know, we've been there. Uh, there's, there's nothing like working with, uh, Chief Alston, Chief Jacobson, prior fire chiefs, prior police chiefs. We are a one heck of a team and, and, and led and led by, you know, Sean Madison and, uh, and Mayor Elker. We have a great team and there's there's no doubt about it. Well, we appreciate that. You're out there, Rick. Rick Fontana, over five decades, well over five decades, has been helping people and now is in charge of directing how we help people in emergencies like snowstorms, like summer summer floods. And Rick, thank you very much for making time for us. So you're telling people, be careful later today, especially around rush hour. We're going to have a lot more rain. There will probably be some flooding and don't drive into any floods. And thanks as always, Rick Fantana. It's always an honor to be dealing with you in the, when there are emergencies and every other day. Yeah, great advice, Paul. Thanks so much. And it's, uh, it's, it's, it's an honor to be with you today as well. Have a great right. day. Rick right, Fontana, guys. emergency management chief of city of New Haven here on love Babs, love talk. And you might notice you're not hearing Babs right now on Love Babs, Love Talk. You're hearing uh, Paul Bass. I'm filling in for Babs when uh, she's away at a conference. And did you know today was pie day? Anyone know what pie is? It's not um, what you eat. It's, uh, it's a mathematical um, value. 
It's the ratio of the circumference of a circle to its diameter. And so one of the things that math nerds do, I'm not a math nerd, by the way, but uh, I wouldn't, um, I have a lot of respect for math nerds. One thing they try to do is how many, how many numbers of pi can you remember? Because, and that's their events always for today, because 314 is today, March 14th. So the beginning of pi that most people know who study math is 3.14. A lot of people know it's 3.14159. That's the value of pi. You use it when you're doing algebra, when you want to know how, how big a circle is and that kind of stuff. And you do your pi is a, a Greek letter that, that it relates to that, um, the, circum the ratio of the circumference of circle to diameter. So I thought in honor of pi day, we would put on some music to make it palatable. And we would uh, see if we how far we can get out of the first thousand values of pi before Nora Grace Flood. It has a a, a special Pi Day edition of um, of Word on the Street. So in the background, you're going to hear Grits King. Grits King is a local musician. Had, had an album out recently, and this is a song called Saving Time. And um, there's no words in it. He's going to be the, the backdrop here. And we're going to meditate on pi. Pi goes on forever. If you want to know how what the exact value of pi is, you would be doing numbers until you're in the assisted living or way beyond and your kids are in assisted living. But with the help of Grits King, let's look at what pi is. Pi is 3.14. One five nine two six five three five eight nine seven nine three two three eight four six two six four three three eight three two seven nine five oh two eight eight four one nine Seven one six nine three nine nine three seven five one oh five eight two oh nine seven four nine four four five nine two three oh seven eight one six four oh six two eight Six two, oh eight, nine nine, eight six, two eight, oh three, four eight, two five, three four, two one, one seven, oh six, seven nine. Just take your break if you're listening. It's Grits King in the background, and in honor of Pi Day, March fourteenth, three fourteen. We're trying to get, see how far we get in the first thousand numbers that represent the value of pi, which is the ratio of the circumference of a circle to its diameter. We're going to keep it going. 
There, hold a second. Six, five, two, seven. Where were you? Oh boy. Well, we're doing the value of pi, and I was getting several hundred in while Grits King is in the background. Six, five, two, seven. Where'd you go? Oh, there we go. One, two, oh, one, nine, oh, nine, one, four, five, six, four, eight, five, six, six. Nine two three four six zero oh, three four eight six one zero oh, four five four three two six six four eight two one three three nine three six zero oh, seven two six zero oh, two four nine. One four, one two, seven three. We're reaching the end of Grits King, but we're only getting started now. On reading Pi to a thousand points, which is only the beginning. Pi is much more than a thousand points. Pi goes on forever, sort of like the quest for meaning and peace and love in our universe. Resuming the count of pi because this is pi day. 314, March 14th, we honor the mathematical equivalent of the circum ratio of the circumference of a circle to its diameter, represented by the Greek letter pi, and often honored with pi that we eat, but we'll get to that later. 6 Three one five five eight eight one seven four eight eight one five two oh nine two oh nine six two eight two nine two five four oh 
Say about Pi three three O five seven two seven O three six five seven five nine five nine one nine five three O nine two one eight six one one seven three eight one nine three Two six one one seven nine three one oh five one one eight five four eight oh seven four four six two three seven nine nine six two seven four five six excuse me Nine five six seven three five one eight eight five seven five two seven two four eight nine one two two seven nine three eight one eight three oh one one nine four nine one Two. That's Pi for Pi Day with Grits King in the back. As we read the values, aiming to see will we make it all the way to the first 1,000 of many thousand decimal points representing the value of Pi. 9, 8, 3, 3. Six seven three three six two four four oh six five six six four three oh eight six oh two one three nine four nine four six three nine five two two Four seven three seven one nine oh seven oh two one seven nine eight six oh nine four three seven oh two seven seven oh five three nine two one seven one seven six. Pi 
3-1-7-6-7-5-2-3-8-4-6-7-4-8-1-8-4-6. We're talking about the value of pi because it's pi day. We have Grits King of New Haven with his recording of Saving Time to help us get there on WNHH's Love Babs, Love Talk. We're honoring Pi Day. We're wondering if Nora Grace Flood is going to be perhaps calling in with a word on the street about a pie maker. But in the meantime, we have not gotten through the first thousand decimal points representing the value of pi, which as every math nerd might know, is the ratio of the circumference of a circle to its diameter. And it's that Greek letter we use, thinking of it as 3.14, even though it's much more complicated than that. When we look at the area of a circle, if I have that right. If I don't, we do have liable insurance. If you want to sue us, back to the value of pi, where we left off. Seven, six, six, nine, Four zero five one three two zero 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 five six eight one two seven one four five two six three five six zero eight two seven seven eight five seven seven one three. Four two seven five seven seven eight nine six zero oh, nine one seven three six three seven one seven eight seven two one four six eight four four oh nine. Oh one two two four nine five three four three oh one four six five four nine five eight five three seven one oh five oh seven nine two two seven nine Six eight nine two five eight nine two three five. As we go along the string of pi, seeing if we're going to make it to the first thousand of the infinite decimal points numbers that represent the value of pi here on Pi Day. WNHH one hundred three point five. Speaking in numbers, it gets kind of meditative. I find diving into the random sequence of numbers that have patterns within them. But that's telling it, not showing it. Back to the numbers. 4201995611 pi 21 Nine six zero oh, eight six four zero oh, three four four one eight one pi 
Folks, we are not going to make it all the way to a thousand places for pie. Because in honor of Pie Day, Nora Grace Flood is here with a word on the street from a certain pie place. Just going to try to uh, hop our music for a second. Trouble with that. Nora, how's it going? Hi, Paul. Can you hear me? I can hear you, but I'm having a little trouble. I just need to stop the music. Okay. <laughs> All right, Nora Grace Flood. Yeah. Happy Pi Day. Maya McFadden is here. Maya as McFadden, well. happy Pi Day. We got happy the Pi Day. <laughs> Did I get it right that you were just reading the digits of Pi for 20 minutes while we were searching for Pi to report on? Backed by Grits King, local musician. He had a great, oh. so it got very meditative where you can kind of discover the patterns within the random endless string of numbers, which seem to be a lot of metaphors for our existence, but I wasn't ready to run them all down. So what you got for us? What's the word on the street? Yeah. So we've been hopping from bakery to bakery. They're all closed. It's 9 a.m. <laughs> it's a, been a rough morning. Now we're at Elm City Market mm. um, and we've got a couple of lovely women here to talk with us. Um, so hello. Can you tell us what the word on the street is today? Um, equity. Equity. Word. Word. <laughs> nice. Wow. Yeah. And I'm just going to check, Paul, are you able to hear? I can hear you and Maya. We can't hear our guests. Okay, so I'm just going to put the phone a little bit okay. closer to you. Sorry about that. <laughs> no, it's fine. Um, yeah, could you tell us a little bit about what you're up to this morning, what your jobs are? I'm high as hell at work. <laughs> and uh, we work at Elm City Market. You know, we're both cashiers. So. Yeah. Mm. It's the morning, so it's slow. boring. Mm. But, uh, I mean, it's raining, which kind of makes it worse to be at work, you know? I want to relax in the house. Mm. What time did you have to report to work today? 9 a.m. 9 a.m. 8 to 2. Well, you get off early then. Yeah. And I got a job to do too. Oh, what's the new job? No, it's not new. This is my new job. 
Oh, got it. So you're new. How long have you been working here? How long? Have like, you... I would say a month now. No, not even a month. Almost a month. Been. And what about yeah. you? I've been here since May of last year. Okay, oh, got yeah. it. So almost a year. Mm-hmm. And what does the typical work shift look like here? First of all, because of the fact that we're downtown, we get so many like crazy customers. <laughs> so it makes it fun to work here. Mm. But <laughs> you have any anecdotes? It's just. It's, it's a lot. You got to be here for it. <laughs> but I feel like usually aside from that, everybody's pretty cool. We got a diverse like staff. So that's pretty cool. You feel comfortable. You don't really feel out of place or anything like that. We're welcoming and everybody. And everyone kind of just cool with each other. We can talk to each other about regular stuff. It's not just work, work, work. Right. So. Do you guys personally like shop here for groceries or no? <laughs> um, I brought um no, I brought the soap, the organic soap, but not the oh yeah. Wait, 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 what what is organic soap? Is my question. Your skin looks really good. Thank you. Wow, yeah, that was a solid yeah, advertisement. Yes, they were good. Okay, your skin also right. looks really good. <laughs> <Right. laughs> <laughs> um, to answer your other question, for me, a typical work day is since I was born in it's like yeah. really slow. And, um, <laughs> Sorry, I gotta zoom a little closer. Yeah. And are you both? Yeah, we can't hear, by the way. We can't hear when she speaks. Oh, uh, uh, okay. Can you try speaking up a little um, bit, a little louder? A typical work day for me is like um, slow, you know, peaceful because it's the morning. So nobody really come here unless right. like around 12 something. And closing shifts are usually like two to eight. That's when it's really picked up. But I personally like that more just because I feel like it makes time go faster. Mm. But yeah, that's when you see a lot more stuff too. But it goes faster. Mornings are kind of like just slow. I hear both. From New Haven? Yes. yes. Okay. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Born and raised. Yes. How do you like it? I <laughs> like it. Like they just how you like it. <laughs> Specifically, but um, when I get a car, I'm gonna travel like outside of Connecticut and stuff like that. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Connecticut, like, place I've never been. So, is that like this here is crazy? You don't like New Haven so much, or just because you want to get familiar with other places too? Yeah. Oh, that. <laughs> that and. I've been to other states and like for vacation and stuff like that. And like I used to go to college in New York. So stepping out of New Haven after being here all your life is a lot more fun, especially when you're because it's like a fresh start. Nobody knows you. You don't think Haven's too small and everybody knows each other. And it's just it's annoying and the amount of drama, whatever. But you're going to find that anywhere. (laughs) Now, I also feel like. New Haven is kind of we're small but we're united like if uh if a rapper or somebody was to say oh New Haven in the song we're gonna go crazy about it because it's New Haven <laughs> you know but other than that people most have people are out of the place but not New Haven specifically yeah, some people, so, some people. Yeah. or like you know some crazy stuff happens in New Haven I see it on like ID or something but other than that <laughs> like you know <laughs> Yo. you, you step out into like another state nobody knows New Haven like they clown you for being from New Haven, but yeah. when we're here, we're united. So okay, that's beautiful. Yeah, when I do, I'm gonna do a road trip. I don't think I'm gonna come back, but um, <laughs> I don't want to go to. I don't know. I don't want to stay in Connecticut. 
Expound on the idea of equity you were talking about. Mm-hmm. Why was that your word of the day? Um, I say equity because I feel like not only where where I am right now in life, but just worldwide, we need more love and we need more equal rights. Because they say this is a free country and we have equal rights, but it's still no, it's not given. So yeah. yeah. Are there any particular areas of life where you've been feeling that really heavily recently? Um. Sometimes for me, at times, yeah, especially because I'm a girl, so it's like kind of biased sometimes. Mm. But um, I tend to not take it personal, mm. but I see it up around so with different girls. So yeah. Like, What's yeah. your experience working here? I think working, yeah, having this kind of public facing job can be difficult, right? What's your experience been as a cashier? Um, and are you mainly just working the cash register? What's What exactly are your jobs? Here. Also, I mean, as cashiers, we basically yeah. just stand at the register, take right orders, and yeah. and yeah. can I also ask you both to speak up a little bit more? Yeah, too? Oh, all right. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, we just bring stuff up, talk yeah. to customers, like when they're here, open up the bathrooms if they need help, like just basic stuff over here. Right. Or, really it. or when it's really close, um, our manager or supervisor, wherever she is, see if she'll probably be so hard to tell us to like put stuff on a shelf. Yeah. Okay. Got it. But like everybody else, has, it's, the grocery store goes by department. So like, I mean, we're just a cashier with the front end area, whatever. And we have like another cash register in the back. Um, vendors a deli, they got their own thing going on. Grocery got their own thing going on. Yeah, everything. So everybody got their own thing going on. Yeah. Like, it kind of feels like you two are the charmers of Elm City Market. Yeah. Like you're the oh, people. The customers come back. Why don't you like pie? Well, the last time I tried pie, I feel like pie is just—it was too um gooey for me. Like too the gooey. I don't like the the inside part of it. It was just not doing it for me. It was a fruit type of pie. I think that's why. Okay. Sweet potato pie is just too dry mm. for me. It's like cooked puddings. Like if you put pudding in a thing and try to make it into a cake or something. Right. Is there too any thin. pie you think you might like? A pie you want to try? I don't know. I tr- I kind of just blocked pie out after that. Yeah. I after what was the first pie you ever tried? Sweet potato pie. Okay. Yeah. At Thanksgiving or just in general? Yeah, I think it was Thanksgiving. Oh, we actually there's have a pie. one single pie yeah, inside Elm City Market. Wow. Yeah. From Lyman Orchard. Right. Which is actually a really fun place. I took my niece there. And it was oh yeah. Beautiful. 
What did you do there? The corn maze? Yeah, they had a corn maze. We did that. And then they have like the thing where you take pictures and it's like you put your head in it. That was cool. Mm. And they had... Um, Are you buying this pie right now? <laughs> um, no. Friday. We're going to talk about how many the pie. Oh. <laughs> this is Amora. Amora is another one. Hi, Amora. She... They're doing, we're doing a podcast. A quick radio okay, segment. Right. Hi, <laughs> can I ask you, have you sold any pies yet this morning? No, I didn't even know that. Oh, wait, <laughs> yeah, does pie day mean oh, no, anything to you? Okay. Okay. <laughs> Do you like, Um, I like pumpkin pie. Pumpkin pie. <laughs> yeah. I do like pie. No way. Not apple, but pumpkin. Wait, why? 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 Why pumpkin, but not <laughs> apple? I feel like for texture. Okay, like, yeah, that's yeah. real. And then I don't know. I just like it all year round. I mean, yeah. definitely during like the fall, but mm-hmm. yeah. What do you think of when you think of pie? Like, what does that dessert bring to mind? Like a pie thing. Oh, oh <laughs> you know what? Yeah, yes, I was trying so right. to like pie yeah. right. yes. Um I, and. Yeah, our editor is also listening on the other oh, side. Okay. Um, well, actually, he's technically not our editor anymore. Sorry, Paul, I, I mislabeled you. But Paul, okay. do you have any questions you'd like to ask? I just enjoyed listening to the conversation. We're about to um, uh, get to um, to uh, another segment. I'm trying to help someone get in on these. I just want to say oh, that I really, love the, <laughs> I really love to deal with the people at Elm City Market. I think you do oh. a great job. I think the people, the cashiers are always so friendly and just humid and relaxed and they're doing such a, they do a good job. And I just want to tell you that I think you're a great crew, very connected New Haven. I've always noticed that about the people working at Elm City Market and just thanks for doing a good job. Okay, perfect. Well, we'll let you get back to that next guest. Um, happy Pi Day, everyone. Thank you, bye. All right, well, that was word on the street and um with Nora, it was Pi Day because it's the day 314, March 14th, when we um, celebrate or mark the uh, math nerd's favorite unending decimal train, which is the value of pi, the ratio of circumference of a circle to its diameter. And it's approximately 3.14, but as you heard before, you can go that decimal point forever. We're trying to squeeze in before the end of the hour. We have uh, Mark Pazniokas, the uh, Capital Bureau Chief from the Connecticut Mary. He's having a little trouble getting on, um, getting on the Zoom. So let me just see. Um, you're listening to Love Babs, Love Talk. Um, and uh, I'm Paul Bass filling in for Babs because Babs is away for the week at a uh, writing workshop. So when he, she comes back, she, she already saw the picture. She's very relaxed. She's kind of summoning her inner muse. And uh, Mark Pazniokas has been with the Connecticut Mirror since it started more than a dozen years ago. The, one of the two main online news sources for what happens statewide with news from the Capitol. And he, uh, he made that transition from being a longtime print reporter to being an online reporter. And as you see now, he's making the transition to doing radio over Zoom over the Internet. Mark Pazniokas, thanks so much for coming on uh, on Pi Day on Love Babs, Love Talk and WNHH. Thank you. Thank you. And this is my second Zoom meeting of the morning. Uh, and 
I was happy to have you invite me and it gets me out of my morning staff meeting, which is always good. <laughs> that is awesome. I'll do that anytime you want because I hate meetings too, even though usually like the people. Paz, what's the big, and Paz is, is really known as the dean or, or one of the deans of state political coverage since the last century, actually. <laughs> I know that I love, anytime he just covers a routine press conference by a politician, I learned so much, not just about what happened that day, but about how politics and government work in Connecticut. I really depend on Paz for that. And I really love how he does his job. Paz, what's the big, what's the big story these days up at the Capitol? Well, we're at the point in the, in the session that we're getting to the halfway mark, but, uh, but it really is just uh, the end of kind of the first act and a three act play and getting controversial bills out of committees is really not that big a deal. Um, the question is what now happens to them, um, what negotiations are done, and what shape will these bills be in when they get to the calendar of the House or the Senate? And what I'm talking about are things like the predictive schedule bill that has been a priority of organized labor for some years. Um, a version got through the Senate last year. Um, they're going to start it in the House this year. Uh, there's no question it will get out of the Labor Committee probably next week, but the question will be um, how will it ultimately be drawn as to who it applies to? And the, you know, the predictive schedule bill is geared to large retailers that would kind of jerk employees around uh, and also fast. The idea is if you work at a Starbucks or you work at um at a at a um to, uh, at a Tommy well it's no more Tommy K's but at a, at a clothing store sometimes they don't tell you till you go home that night what time you're working the next morning so you have these crazy schedules where you don't know when you can get childcare if you go to school if you get class and and organized labor wants to have those employees covered in a way so that you get to know in advance when your schedule is is that correct it is it is and there are some folks who balance you know two or even three um part-time jobs to to make life work so obviously for them they need some predictability um the bigger picture on this is this is one of several examples of organized labor um, trying to achieve at the General Assembly what they have been unable to do by organizing um, and and collective bargaining. And that's been um, a trend we've seen for some years now, which is, you know, makes it um, interesting. There, it's a broader political story about the balance of power between unions and business in a time when uh, public sector unions obviously are very powerful in Connecticut, but in the private sector, you know, it's been difficult. Um, Aren't we you, under 10% nationally with how many people in the private sector? 10 or 11%, something like that. It hovers around there, yes. Um, Connecticut so, Mark, how would it work with predictive schedule? And I, I think in your article, I saw it described as retailers, restaurant workers, hotel workers, and nursing home workers. What would they have to do? Is there an hour um, advance notice in the bill? It's basically two weeks notice and then you, the employer can make um, adjustments a week out. And um, so the question is the size of the employer that will be covered. It is really 500, it's geared to larger employers, 500 employers. So, I mean, that's was aimed at Walmart. Ironically, Walmart, I'm told by uh, labor people, actually has changed their approach to scheduling and they've become uh, fairly reasonable but in large part because of the tight labor market. And they have learned that if you stop jerking around your employees, they might stick around longer. Um, 
But the tricky thing has been how it applies to restaurants. Now, obviously, restaurants don't have 500 employees, but um, there's also a line in there that if you are part of a national restaurant chain, 30 or more restaurants, um, it applies to you. And that's been um, a sticking point because some of the franchise owners, they are they claim that they are more or less mom and pop operations that might have a dozen employees and they don't have the flexibility um, or don't have the staff to make that commitment. So is that Starbucks? Would that be, are we talking about Starbucks here in part? No, because Starbucks, my understanding is Starbucks generally are not franchise operations. Those are owned by it, but it would be Dunkin' Donuts, right? The ubiquitous Dunkin' Donuts or Subway, you know? You might have, um, you know, you might have a, a couple that have one subway, but because it's part of a national franchise, the way the bill was originally written, it would apply to them. One of the things I'm hearing behind the scenes is there will be pressure to narrow the reach of the of the bill and maybe start it out with really focus on the larger big box retailers and see how it goes from there. Mark Pazniokas is the Capitol Bureau Chief for the Connecticut Mirror. Since it was founded in 2010, he's the go, a go-to person if you want to understand what's happening. Stacey, he talked about a three-act process to go through every legislative session. We're now in a legislative session because it's an odd number year. It'll go through May, correct? And um, so the first act- the first, Yeah, first week of June, actually. But yeah. So the first act is when, we, when committees take up bills, right? And we already lost cap the rent in one of those. So the, you find out if, if they hold hearings on a bill- and then what's the second act? The second act on the more complex bills or controversial ones are then the negotiations that take place uh, outside the committee process and off the floor. And that's when it becomes um, interesting to and more challenging to track these things. Um, you know, the governor has, for example, two very uh, ambitious bills on uh, health care cost containment. Um, the insurance committee is expected to report out um, one of the bills today, but the, there was another one that came, came before public hearing, uh, before public health for a hearing yesterday, and there was a lot of pushback, and that that is something that clearly there's going to be a lot of negotiation on before we know whether that actually has a chance. Do you think that the predictive hours bill will pass? And if it does, do you think it would be in a form that narrows it so much to big box retailers? Do you think most workers on those hourly wages will be affected? One of my sources in leadership indicated that there is a great sensitivity to the smaller franchisees about this. Um, so you know, you can you can make you can narrow the bill one of two ways. You can um, narrow it by who is covered, and you can also narrow it by how much advance notice is necessary. So those are the the kind of the two. You know, you know, it's kind of the matrix, right? You know, the X and Y lines, and um, we'll see. That really hasn't started in earnest. Um, the other question is. Where is the governor on this? The governor's administration has really not been engaged on this or some other labor bills. You know, one of the other ones that uh, labor is pushing is to apply the full minimum wage to tipped workers, primarily in restaurants. Right. And this is very controversial because the restaurants put forward their surveys that show um 
you know, wages with tips, um, you know, $30 an hour or more. Um, in theory, um, if you are working for a more modest restaurant and your tips do not um, come to the minimum wage, your employer is supposed to make up the difference. Um, there was testimony at a public hearing that that is hard to enforce, at least nationally. The Obama administration made a push for this years ago and found compliance was very low. Um, I have not seen any data about what the rate of compliance is in Connecticut. But that one, I think, may be a, a harder lift. Um, All right. Well, Mark Pazniokas, I'm sorry we have to run out. We have to go to the top of the hour break with public service announcements. Mark Pazniokas, what a pleasure to chat with you. I'm glad we got you out of a boring meeting. Anytime. Thank you, Paul. Keep up the great coverage of State Capitol. CTMirror.org, Connecticut Mirror. Mark Pazniokas is going to let us know throughout the session the fate of this bill we've been talking about. Have a great day, Mark. Okay, Paul. Thank you. We're going to take a station break here, come back with Chris George from Iris, who's always interesting. And we're going to listen to the Afro-Semitic experience on the way out. Stick with us at WNHH 103.5 FM, your home for community radio. This is Harry Droz, and you're listening to WNHHLP 103.5 FM, New Haven. Welcome back to WNHHFM, Dateline New Haven. I'm Paul Bass. Invite you to look behind the headlines on the stories that make our community tick. This morning, I have the pleasure of bringing back to the studio one of New Haven's heroes, a person who surely makes our community tick, and he involves us. He involves hundreds, if not thousands, of New Haveners in welcoming some 500 refugees a year to our city. Makes, our, makes New Haven a haven for people rebuilding their lives and fleeing difficult situations elsewhere. It's Chris George. Executive Director, Integrated Refugee and Immigrant Services, a.k.a. IRIS. And Chris, welcome back to WNHHFM. Paul, thanks for having me back. It's great to be here. So, Chris, we were talking before we went on the air. There's a new federal policy in the United States, how we're going to resettle refugees. What is the change and how does that impact or reflect how you do the work every day in New Haven? Mm-hmm. Well, in, in January, Secretary of State Anthony Blinken announced a new program called the Welcome Corps, and it is meant to remind people a little bit of the Peace Corps, 
Uh, and I was a Peace Corps volunteer, so I, I like the name. And what the Welcome Corps program is, it invites ordinary, extraordinary, everyday Americans to form a group, get a little bit of training, and then resettle or welcome a refugee family in their community. Now, up until now, for the past 40 years, if you were a volunteer and wanted to participate in welcoming refugees, you had to find a refugee resettlement agency that welcomed volunteer involvement, like IRIS. But not every refugee agency in the country believes that volunteers can do a really good job of resettling refugees. So a lot of volunteers were a little frustrated over the years. I mean, we welcomed, when I say we, refugee resettlement agencies for a long time have been welcoming, you know, hundreds of thousands of refugees. And we've done a pretty good job of providing the, the basic services, housing, enroll kids in school, connect them to health care, help them find jobs, help them learn English. We have not done, until recently, a terrific job of inviting Americans to come in and participate in this great program. You might not be aware of that, Paul, because you live here in Connecticut, and IRIS has always involved a lot of volunteers. In fact, we kind of pioneered a community-based Program it makes where, everything from run from refugees to people whose synagogues or churches sponsor yes. a family to people who individually, if I'm not mistaken, take on a family to help them get settled and drive them places. And and uh, is that kind of what we're talking about? Exactly. We call it co-sponsorship, where oh. a group will come together, get a little training, and then we'll place the family with them, and they'll do everything. American synagogue that, had that, yeah. That's unusual. I mean, that doesn't happen oh. in every state. Most how many refugee agencies do don't do that. Oh, we have, we have more than a thousand volunteers spread all over the state. So that has been so successful, or this model has been so su successful in Connecticut that the U.S. government wants to do it across the country, and they started this program called the Welcome Corps. So now, at least, you need a minimum of five people come together, get some training, and then a family will be placed with you. It's and unprecedented. That? So Iris does that in New Haven. Like, so if, you're, if the State Department brings someone to send someone somewhere, like um, what they've done often, when people come back to Afghanistan, Iraq, Syria, war, they know that they can trust Iris. They could say, Iris, you're going to find me someone to train or five people to train to take on the families. How is this going to happen in places that don't have Irises? That, that's the big difference. In the past, you needed to be near a refugee resettlement agency like IRIS to do this work. Now you don't. You can be anywhere in the country. You'll be trained remotely. Oh, remotely. By IRIS. Oh, by IRIS. Yes. I mean, we're part, we're, we're part of this kind of founding consortium that's running the Welcome Corps program. Oh, okay. Uh, we do webinars uh, twice a week. With so how people many groups, from all over the world. How many irises are in the founding consortium? Um, there are about five organizations that have come together to run this program under the State Department. So the State Department is contracting with five groups, including IRIS, around the country to train people the way you do here. And you're so good at it. 
remotely you're going to train people all over the country to take in refugees. That kind of spreads out who takes in whom, which is a good thing, right? Oh, it's great. I mean, it's 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 the most important innovation in refugee resettlement in in 40 years. Really? And, oh yeah, no, it's 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 a game changer. It's very similar to the way they resettle refugees in Canada. Canada has the world's most successful and largest private sponsorship program where Canadian citizens have been welcoming refugees as volunteers for decades. And when does this start, Chris? Welcome Corps is beginning now. Okay. I mean, you can jump on the website. And did you have to hire a bunch of people for this? We have hired uh, four or five more people to supplement the ones we've had on staff. And it's been, it's been going well. Okay. Um, what have you found so far? Like, where have you been training people remotely? From what states? You know, there's a group in California that has formed that we're training. Um, there is a group in Ohio. There's a group I just heard about in Wisconsin. I gave a talk in Montclair, New Jersey last Friday. There's a lot of enthusiasm there. So it's, it's happening all over so the place. So already Iris has begun training people in California, Ohio, and Wisconsin potentially New Jersey, to do what we do here, which is to have clusters of people take on families coming in. Yep. What will this mean for the country? Will we be able to bring in more people than we were? Or is this not going to change the numbers? It could change how, how we do the job to help people really succeed here. That is the perfect question. So for years, I've been promoting this model, this way of resettling refugees, because it is the best way to educate Americans about refugees, and to build public support. No better way to get people enthusiastic about refugees than to actually swing open the doors, invite them in to, to do the work. So it's going to dramatically increase public support, which is going to translate to political support for refugee resettlement. And you mentioned it, it's going to increase our nation's capacity to resettle more refugees. Now, how does that decision get made? How that's many the, we take That's in? the Department of State, uh, which has, you know, the Biden administration has been committed to engaging more Americans in refugee resettlement, even before they took office during their campaign, and now they're living up to that promise. We're talking to Chris George, Executive Director of IRIS, which helps more than 500 refugees a year. That's the correct number, correct? Come in and uh, engages over 1,000 New Haveners in helping them. All across the state. Oh, oh, so all over the states, not just New Haven. Right, and we're working uh, a lot now with Ukrainians. What is going on with Ukrainians? Is there a lot coming here? There are. Oh, there was a community already, Ukrainian-American community, that was pretty set up to work with you, correct? Unlike some, let's say, it seemed to me it was large in the Afghan-American community. Maybe I'm wrong, but you don't always see them. But I always noticed how visible and, and established the Ukrainian community here. Ukrainian and also the Polish community. Yeah. So. Oh, okay. Yes, so a lot of Ukrainians have have, uh, have gone to New Britain. And in fact, if you it's list... There's a Polish community in New Britain, correct? There is a Polish community, yeah. yep. Um, if you list the states from most Ukrainians resettled to least, Connecticut is about number 13 on that list. So in total numbers, not... In, in total. So oh, wow. way out of proportion to its, its population, we're, we're resettling uh, a lot of Ukrainians. And is that still coming in? Is there a lot of people fleeing Ukraine? They're still coming in. In fact, there are more Ukrainians who want to be resettled in the United States than there are sponsors who can accept them. 
Mm. So that that's I use that word sponsor. That's not exactly the way we use it in refugee resettlement, but the pathway that Ukrainians have been coming through to the United States is through the Department of Homeland Security. And just one individual, Paul, you, yourself, or I could just say, I want to sponsor a Ukrainian family. And if we can demonstrate we've got the financial capacity to support them for, for five years, a Ukrainian family will be placed with well, us. What does it mean? You mean you pay all their expenses for five years? Yeah, or? that's that. It's a, it's a, it's a. Because I noticed that other people who help refugee families, they're not necessarily paying for their stuff, but they're driving to appointments. They're helping them work out problems they have, and whether it's getting a bank account or signing up for a training program or getting that's into a the, school. That's the best way to resettle people. The the Department of Homeland Security method of resettling Ukrainians. It was a great way to get a lot of people here quickly. They did not require them to work as a group, the, the Americans welcoming the Ukrainians, and, and, and that's what Welcome Corps is doing, form a group. They did not require them to get training, the Ukrainian program. Welcome Corps does require training, and the Ukrainian program did not link up the American sponsor with an experienced organization to help them if they ran into problems. Welcome Corps does. All right, so let's hear for Welcome that's, Corps. That's, that's the best way to do it, is form a group, get training, and make sure you've got a professional organization that'll help you. Okay. Now, how long you what, did you form, Iris? Are you the founding executive? No, member? Iris has been around since 1982. Uh-huh. It was created by the Episcopal Church of Connecticut, and, it, and back then it was called Interfaith refugee ministry we changed the name to reflect a more inclusive attitude you know we 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 wanted people of all faiths or no formal faith to come to iris and participate in the program how long you been running the organization i've been there for 18 years so since 2005 yeah, a and long then, time. And then you were there during the big uh, Trump administration battles. and There were that ups change? and downs. And is now, and, and the work was equally important in all those environments, but now do you feel you have a federal government that supports what you're doing and works with you? Definitely. There's still some areas that need improvement with the Biden administration. We're not delighted with um, their policies at the southern border. I wanted to ask you about that. So now what, what were his latest moves that were more restrictive because he... Yeah, there's a concern that we can't handle all the people coming over the border right now. Right. So on the one hand, they want to open up some legal pathways uh, for people from Nicaragua, Venezuela, Haiti, Cuba. Um, but at the same time, they're threatening to put people in detention uh, again, uh, as they were detained during the, the Trump administration, um, and turn people back and have them wait in Mexico. So, uh, which is not a safe place for people to, uh, to wait. So what should the policy be? The policy should be to allow anyone who has a credible fear of persecution. And that can be established in an, in an initial interview and screening process to come and wait in the United States for their asylum claim to be adjudicated. And of course, a lot of people are fleeing gang violence yeah. and other forms of violence and threats. There are a lot of people also economic refugees. And we have a tradition in our world, in our country of welcoming people as well who seeking a better life. What, 
What should the rules be for that in our capacity to handle it? Well, that's a good question. Uh, economic uh, refugees are not recognized as um, refugees under uh, international law. Um, the definition of refugee is someone who has fled persecution on the basis of race, religion, nationality, membership in a particular social group, or their political opinion. So climate refugees and economic refugees are not yet included in, in that those protected categories. So right now the United States is not under legal obligation to allow climate or economic refugees enter, but our economy needs it. So it makes sense. Uh, well, how do we get there politically? It's become such a divisive, divisive issue, not just become, it's become that way over the last decade or more. We used to be able to find, whether you call it a middle ground or compromises that take into account everyone's concern across party. This didn't used to be a partisan issue. Is there a way out of this? Is there? There is. What's the And way it's out? refugee resettlement mm -hmm. involved. In, it's, it's Welcome Corps. I mean, welcoming refugees brings Americans together. I've, mm. I've seen it happen. Yeah. People across the political spectrum, different faiths, different colors, different ages, coming together to welcome a family from, you know, the Congo or Syria or Afghanistan or Ukraine. And you begin to understand people from other countries, how they've suffered, and what has made this country great over the years is, is the incredible diversity and the, the talents And that, people that go people through so much to get here. They have skills that then... I mean, these are tough people. We yeah. want people with grit. We yeah. want someone who has managed to buy a ticket to Brazil, travel overland from Brazil through the Darien Gap in Panama, make their way through Central America, through Mexico, cross the border, and surrender to border guards saying, I won't apply for political asylum. You know, those are the kind of people we need in this country who, you know, are determined, tough, survivors do um do you have any dealings still with ice we heard a lot about ice during the trump administration the immigration customs enforcement the people who try to get people on here illegally do you have any people you're helping through iris lately who have been in the crosshairs of ice who aren't supposed to be here or they're trying to deport we one of the big changes at iris is over the past few years uh, it started during the previous administration, is that we've swung open our doors and we're doing many, uh, we're doing a lot of services, helping a lot of people who are undocumented. Um, during the Trump administration, our policy was, look, if this administration is not going to bring a lot of new refugees to this country, we're going to do more with the people who are here, including undocumented. Yes, and, and uh, some of our clients it's not as bad as it's been in the past but some of our clients um, are threatened um, by ice could be arrested at any moment and deported we're seeing well, less of to, that oh you're seeing less because i wonder if they try to kind of bother ice if they try to bother iris as a way to get at people or is it not that kind of thing no we've not, we've had no 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 you know run-ins with uh with ice um uh, George, Chris, you mentioned being in the Peace Corps, I guess, in 1977. You were in post-war Lebanon, Gaza, and the West Bank. Are you th do you draw a line to the work you did then, to the work you're doing now, especially as you mentioned how you said Welcome Corps is somewhat 
targeting to the Peace Corps? Um, yes. So I was a Peace Corps volunteer, 77 to 79, in a place called the Sultanate of Oman. And I think looking back on that, it's true. That launched me on a career of doing mostly international humanitarian work. I worked overseas for about 17 years. Wow. Spent a lot of time in refugee camps. Um, and then when I came back to Connecticut in 2005, wanted something that would keep my involvement in international work alive and found that there was refugee resettlement happening, that there was this small, sleepy little organization tucked away in the corner of Worcester Square called Interfaith Refugee Ministry uh, that was looking for an executive I'm sorry, director. What, what year, I'm sorry, what year did you take that over? That was in 2005. Oh, that's right, you did tell me that. Yeah. And what motivates you to do that over so many decades? To be, what has motivated you to make helping refugees, whether you're doing it abroad and being in a refugee camp or doing it in New Haven, welcoming their families here, what motivates you to do this work? Well, there, there are a lot of reasons, Paul. Um, one, when you're working with people who have suffered so much and have fled persecution and have lost family members and have been forced to leave their, their homes, you want to do something that can bring at least some small bit of, of justice to their lives, to somehow compensate them in a tiny, tiny bit for all they've lost. And, and that's, that's refugee resettlement, to give them a warm welcome and to help them regain some control over their lives. I mean, they've been pushed around and, and persecuted and told where to go, stay in that tent and come out only on, on you know, Wednesdays to get your rations and you can't go there, you can't work there, you can't do this, you can't do that. Here in the United States, there are freedoms and there are opportunities that they have not known for years. And it's what, what so story, satisfying. Before I let you go, you want to tell us a story about one person Iris has helped recently? Well, there's a woman from Ukraine with three kids who came through that Department of Homeland Security program. Her sponsor was a bit overwhelmed. They needed help, contacted Iris, and we found a community group to help her and her sister and her three children. Now, this was an accomplished woman in Ukraine. She managed a restaurant, but we found her a job, and she's a server in a restaurant in Connecticut, and she loves it here. And she, you know, she pronounces it Connecticut, um, hasn't, hasn't <laughs> caught on to the silent sea, but um, she's just, I mean, I talked to her the other day, and she's just uh, over the moon. My guess is one day she might be managing her running restaurant again. She will soon be managing her own restaurant. Well, Chris George, thank you for the work you do day in and day out. Since 2005, running Iris, Immigrated Refugee and Immigrant Services, so happy to hear that the Biden administration has adopted your model and that you're right in the thick of it, one of five groups nationwide, helping bring this community embrace model and support model to Wisconsin, California, Ohio, and who knows where else. Thank you, Chris. Always great. Thanks, great Paul. We're going to take a break here, folks, on Dateline New Haven with the Afro-Semitic experience performing I Wish I Knew, How It Feel to Be Free. Happy Pi Day, folks. We'll be back after the break with State Treasurer. 
Eric Russell talking about baby bonds on WNHH New Haven's home for community radio. Oh, wait, I, I wanted to bring up one other point before we leave. It's Pie Day, which is the day we, we celebrate pie, which is the... Um, which is the never-ending string of decimals that begin with 3.14 that represent basically how you calculate the area of a circle. And it's Pi Day because it's March 14th, 3.14. And in honor of Pi Day, we're going to play a different song. I've forgotten. Don McLean's American Pie. So uh, in honor of Pi Day, here's Don McLean. A long, long time ago I can still remember that music used to make me smile And I knew if I had my chance That I could make those people dance And maybe they'd be happy for a while But February made me shiver With every paper I'd deliver Bad news on the doorstep I couldn't take one more step. I can't. Hi, this is Bella, and you are listening. W N H H L L P one one New Haven New Haven. Sleeming. Back to Dateline New Haven on WNHH New Haven's home for community radio. I'm Paul Bass, inviting you to look behind the headlines on the stories that make our community tick. Here's a New Havener who's making New Haven and Connecticut tick. State Treasurer Eric Russell, the first New Havener in a statewide constitutional office since 1986. So you've been the State Treasurer since January, and how's it going so far? Things are going well. Things are going well. We're settling in. Uh, we hit the ground running. Uh, we had a very smooth transition uh, thanks to, to Treasurer Wooden, and we've been able to, to really uh, get right to work. So excited about the opportunities. I think we're in a really good spot as a state to, to build on the success that we've had over the last several years um, and really position ourselves uh, to be in a different place uh, longer term. Now, mostly that means you're managing state pensions and other investments, right, to get the highest return. And is that what you're talking about mostly? Are you having a new approach to how you're investing the money? Certainly. I mean, well, it's it's certainly that. And one of the big pieces uh, on the pension fund side is in addition to the work that we're going to be doing to really just improve returns. It's also about uh, the fact that we've made these huge contributions to our pension funds over the last several years. And just so we, people know about that, we had some of the highest, I'm not mistaken, per capita debt in our pension funds in the country because of decades yeah. and decades of politicians, both parties, not putting in realistic amounts, though, how it was going to cost. 
So the last bunch of years, especially with the rainfall of money of in the pandemic, really federal relief money, we've been paying down that pension. What does that look like, Eric? What, how much of a difference is that making? It's huge because, I mean, really, when, you, when you're paying more into our pension funds, what it also allows you to do is you're investing that, and that's growing over time as well. So in addition to kind of our required contributions over the last uh, several years, we've also made about $6 billion in additional payments to our unfunded pension liabilities. And uh, what we are also do doing is the legislature uh, just continued those guardrails that we've had in place, which ultimately, you know, a volatility cap, a revenue cap, and the commitment that when we have, we have a full rainy day fund right now, those additional surpluses uh, that we've been able to um, to realize as a state have gone into our pension funds. Uh, so can I just, just explain that for our listeners? So what that means is that we have rainy day fund means we set aside for emergencies and we fully yep. funded ours, which is a good thing. And then Correct. and if we still have more money we're bringing in because revenues have been high because of trends in the economy or what years hedge fund owners are paying their taxes, you're saying that money's going into paying down attention. So do you have any kind of sense for the average person in Connecticut how much they're going to be saving over time because you made that extra $6 billion investment in the pension fund? Yeah, it's huge. I mean, we're seeing on an annual basis about $500 million of savings annually as we're looking at our general fund from those additional contributions. And that, again, that's on an annual basis year over year. So it's it's a huge savings to our state. Um, and when I mentioned kind of the continuation of that on a bipartisan basis, we just passed uh, the continuation of those guardrails. So keep keeping uh, the kind of structure and mechanisms in place um, that will, you know, essentially require us to continue to pay down debt when we have these surpluses. So, you know, it's it's been a really big commitment on the part of the state. And I think it's huge because it really positions us um, in, a, in terms of addressing our overall fiscal health, which we've done. We've seen uh, several bond ratings in the last few years, uh, bond rating increases. But it in other words, the bottom rate is saying Connecticut is doing a better job of uh, managing of it its money so then we could borrow money for less of an interest rate. Exactly. And it's because we've made these commitments to really addressing some of our structural and, and long-term issues. Um, but it also puts us in a position, again, in terms of, in addition to addressing our you know immediate concerns and the kind of overall fiscal health, it allows us to make some of these longer-term investments uh, in our state as well. Which, so I hadn't uh, thought of that before we came on. You were mentioning that once the state makes the decision to pay down the pension debt and put more money into the pension fund, you have more money to invest. So that you're now on the, on the uh, have the responsibility of investing that money well, so we get further savings down the line. And Absolutely. how are you? And, have you changed again, your strategy for that? Have you have you changed the strategy or um, evolved the strategy of how you're investing that money? So what what I'm really looking to do is to to help build a world class investment team uh, within our office, and we have some really uh, great talent. We want to make sure that we uh, have consistency there and that we're able to retain the talent that we have. Um, we also we have so much talent uh, investment expertise in the state of Connecticut. Um, and we you know, so the treasurer's office works closely with the Investment Advisory Council, uh, which really helps the treasurer's office um, set investment strategy and policy. Um, and so we're seeking to make some legislative changes to really allow us to, to bring in some great talent on the Investment Advisory Council. Um, so, you know, we're looking at this holistically. We want to make sure that we are bringing the right talent in, that we're building a culture of excellence um, within our investment team. So, Eric Russell, State Treasurer, it sounds like you're saying more than like telling us which particular fund you're going to invest in or strategy, we got to fix the assets or more speculative investments. You're talking about 
talent makes the difference, which is clearly what people think in the industry. They talk about David Swenson when he was the Yale investment officer of and he had that like, you know, superhero team of talent. <laughs> yeah. So, uh, so what is the legislative change you're seeking so that you can have a team of superheroes as well? Yeah. So one is, uh, with, we call PFM as our investment team. So we have a bill, um, addressing kind of the compensation structure, um, and allowing us more flexibility within the PFM team to really, uh, not only bring in great talent and attract great talent, but also to retain uh, that talent. In, in other words, pay them more. We need to pay people well, more to keep them. I mean, we're, we haven't been as competitive salary-wise as a lot of uh, places across the country, and we're not looking to you know, set the top of the market in terms of compensation, but we want to make sure we're able to bring the right people in and keep them. Well, the but idea is that if is, you spend another $50,000 on a person, that might save you $50 million, correct, if they know how to so, do it. I mean, absolutely, right? And, and it, one of the big things that we know is that continuity within – a pension fund and, and having uh, the right people stay on board is uh, there's very close correlation between that and returns at the end of the day. Um, and I think about David. And I wonder when you want to attract people, I guess they got to look at this young state treasurer who believes so much in what he's doing. You got to inspire them, right? Because no matter how much we pay him, a hedge fund is going to pay him more. So like David Swenson always talked about that. I remember talking to him. He was the late investment advisor at Yale, who basically is our generation's most successful public interest investor for universities and he was driven so much by a calling and he communicated to all his people who went on to run other university um hedge uh investment arms which is that, that was, yeah. when you you know you might make more on wall street david swenson could have been a, a multi multi multi-millionaire rather than just wealthy but he felt I, i'm fine being wealthy because instead of ultra wealthy because i'm keeping knowledge alive i believe in the mission of universities i believe that these dollars we make with our investments are gonna keep the pursuit and quest of knowledge alive and make the world a better place. How do you, how do you embody or express that same mission for you when you're talking to this team you're trying to retain? No, I think that's exactly right. Is is what is at the core of the work that we're doing is a commitment to public service and the, the talent that we're looking to attract are folks that could be working in a lot of different spaces. Right. Um, but I think it's one having uh, a very clear vision on what we're trying to do um, and the mission that is ultimately about, uh, really improving the lives of residents of our state um, and and making that commitment. And I think building a team where people are excited about the work they're doing, they enjoy the people they're working with. And I think we've made some really great strides on that front in terms of building uh, the team out. And so, you know, part of this bill and the legislation is to help us, uh, you know, it, it's attracting talent. It's also building people up within the organization. And, you know, one example of that is we have a great analyst, um, who started as an intern in the office and she's worked her way up. And so having some more flexibility to kind of provide this, this step ladder for her to continue to work up within uh, the office, you know, I, that's uh, a part of, you know, it's a component of the bill as well. So uh, we're excited about the opportunities. I think we're really in a place for uh, us as a state to make some, some huge strides uh, with the commitment uh, from the governor and the legislature in addressing a lot of these uh, you know, really long-term and structural challenges that we've had. So, Eric, when you came in, you had a surprise your very first week on the job, probably, which was that there was this incredible expose in the Connecticut Mirror about how your predecessor basically had his knees cut off by his own party. The legislature passed the bill, so it became a law, that your office was supposed to administer a new program to deal with the racial wealth gap. It was called Baby Bonds, and for about 15,000 kids a year born into Husky, we were going to take just $3,200 when they're born. 
mm-hmm. invested for them. You were going to invest it, talking about mission-based investing. So then they're 18 when it's worth, let's say, $11,000. They'll have some money to get a start on life that other people get when they're born into wealthier families, whether that's to buy a home, go to college, start a business. But the Democratic governor opposed the law, but it was a law, and he signed it. And, the, and all these emails discovered by Connecticut Mirror was they were like viciously undercutting the program. They were making sure that even though it passed into law, it would never be funded and it hasn't for years. And they even said something kind of insulting to you. And uh, you said on the campaign trail that you're for baby bonds. The chief of staff of the of the Lamont administration made a joke. Baby bonds will fix that. LOL. Meaning like Eric Russell thinks he's going to come in and, and carry out a law that was passed to help address interracial wealth. He'll see what happens when he gets in. How did that feel and how are you doing? So I, I will tell you, I mean, I, I don't, uh, I'm not one to feed into the, the gossip or the uh, yeah. back and forth. Um, I came in, uh, as I talked about on the campaign trail, completely committed to this cause. Um, and we have worked diligently since coming in to make sure that the program is ready to implement on July 1st when it is uh, set to, to start. Uh, we have been working very closely with the governor's office and the administration um, and the legislature to make sure that we have all of the pieces in place uh, to implement the program. Um, and the, the main, the only thing that's really being held up right now is the funding. Um, and I will say we've had very productive conversations. Um, I came into this looking at it as I'm starting with the clean slate. Um, I don't know everything that's happened or what's all the dynamics there were uh, prior to me coming in, but. Uh, as I said, you know, I, I've had conversations with the governor. We've been working closely with the administration, making sure that the program is ready to implement. Um, I know one of the major um, kind of hurdles was that there was some opposition to funding the program through bonding. Uh, and we have been looking at a host of different ways to fund the program, uh, you know, through. I thought that's what the legislature approved, though, that it be funded through it bonding. Is, it is. And but again, I came into this w- with uh, the idea that. I'm having an open mind as to how we get there. And so, so you don't care where the money us, comes from. You just care that the program starts and it gets funded. Well, and I want to make sure that we're, we're funding the program in a way that's going to be most cost effective. And that's going to uh, ultimately, you know, make sure that we're able to deliver. And so, um, you know, I, again, we've been working very closely with the legislature. There is still a ton of support for the program. And I think we are going to be, uh, we are going to be successful in making sure that we stay on target with that July 1st implementation date. So, no, uh, I, Eric, I, are you saying that you think it might not have to go on the bond agenda? Have you identified alternative sources of funding for this? Yeah, we, we're open to uh, many different sources of funding or some com- uh, combination of, of funding sources. And that's uh, those are conversations that we're having now, uh, both with the legislature and the governor's office. And so, you know, I, I will just say, you know, I, I feel very confident in the ability to um, to work collaboratively to get this done. Um and this is a huge opportunity for us as a state. I mean, as I mentioned before, we've made this progress in terms of addressing our overall fiscal health. Um, but we also have many of these structural issues that are still there in terms of, you know, one of the largest wealth gaps uh, in the state and, um, you know, racial and generational inequality. And this is a direct opportunity to understanding that this is a piece of the puzzle. It's not the solution by itself, but to make some of these long-term investments um, in really providing more equity and opportunity in our state. And, you know, in this seat, it's um, somewhat uniquely positioned in thinking about the long-term future of our state, not just about, 
kind of our investments, our decision-making on an annual basis. And as you said, you come in fresh. You're someone no one's angry at, has any prior fights with. You can take it fresh. Have you identified a specific funding source that you can name separate from bonding to get the $50 million you'll need this year to get it going? So I think there's several things that we're looking at, and I don't want to I don't want to uh, kind of narrow it down to anything because I think these are the conversations that we're having. But I think looking at several different uh, types of revenue streams where we could be funding uh, all or a portion of the program out of the general fund, I think there are other ways to potentially bond this that are not just general obligation bonds um, that are sitting on the state's debt. And so I, again, I think some combination of the program. I think there's also rather it's set up right now where we're funding the program over 12 years. Um, $50 million a year um, in bonding. I think there's ways that we could probably do it a little bit more efficiently by funding more of the program up front, which at the end of the day may save, you know, we're talking about a $600 million program. If you're, if you're funding more of that up front, you might be funding this program for four or $500 million um, at the end of the day. So I think, again, we're keeping an open mind. We're uh, excited to be working collaboratively with the legislature and the governor's office on this. Sounds like very creative. Sounds like very creative thinking, and I'm not going to well, push I you think, any farther on it because you got some yeah. negotiating to do. And I'm wondering no, if you'll right. if you'll come back after July 1st and tell us how you got it over the goal line. I'm happy to. You know, I'm always happy to come on and see you, Paul. Well, it's always a pleasure to talk to Eric Russell. He's our hometown guy up there at the Capitol, first constitutional officer from New Haven since 1986, and he's thinking in the long term with baby bonds and the state's pension debt and, and funding for the future. Eric, thank you for joining us on Dateline New Haven. Thank you, Paul. Happy to be here. And uh, we're going to take it out with the Afro-Semitic Experience performing I Wish I Knew How It Feel to Be Free from the group CD, A Plea for Peace. And we'll be back in an hour with Mike Waller. We'll have some other insights about criminal justice and, and state politics. This is Paul Bass wishing you to, inviting you to fly free with us all day and all night on WNHH, New Haven's home for community radio.